You'll see an outline on page five of the service sheet. And it starts with that word that conjures up images for us, perhaps in your memories. That word, nostalgia. Nostalgia. It's not just for the middle-aged men like me who look in the mirror and look at their grey hair that was once an auburn, who look at their face and their neck withering away, not the firm, young, fast, well, I thought I was fast, man I once was. No, I think we all have nostalgia. I think all of us feel and experience nostalgia in so many ways. Perhaps it's when you listen to that band, you hear it on the radio, you've got to listen to a certain radio station because the modern one doesn't cut it, doesn't put those musics, those, those uh, songs on that you once loved. Perhaps you turn to the kind of the middle-aged radio, you know, Triple M, it's middle-aged men music. Perhaps it's when you realise that you're just not with it anymore, like you used to you know, use words like cool and, and now it kind of like feels weird when people hear you say that because you realise you're not. Perhaps it's when you, you realise now that not only do we have smartphones, but if you go to online shopping, um, there is such a nostalgia for what was once, what we used to have. You can now buy for your smartphone, you can go to eBay and buy in any colour you want, the retro 80s handset with a cord you plug into your smartphone, just so you can have that nostalgia. Nostalgia, we all feel it, we're conscious of it, and particularly, I think, humanity, although we suppress the truth about our beginnings, about Genesis one, two, and three, and following. Although we suppress that, there is a sense that amongst humans, amongst humanity, amongst us, our neighbours and our friends and our families, there is a sense of nostalgia. We feel it. We're all conscious that perhaps in our world, it's not the way it's meant to be, is it? Like the, the news cycle. It's not meant to be bad news for 27 minutes. And then we just want to forget the first 27 minutes with the cat story at the end. The world is not meant to be like that. It was not intended to be like that. We, we've got this nostalgia, this feeling, a subconscious perhaps, if it's not conscious among us, a subconscious something that we're missing, something that should have been or was but no longer is. Nostalgia. I looked up a dictionary, as all preachers do when they pull out a word and use it. I went to the dictionary definition, so I did that, went to Google. And on the dictionary on Google, it defines nostalgia as a wistful or excessively sentimental yearning for return to some past period and, get this, irrecoverable, irrecoverable condition. A yearning for something we can't get back. A yearning for something that we'll never have again. Unless I go to a certain Isle of Woolworths, I will never have auburn hair again. If you see me hovering there, I'm just really looking at the deodorant. There are certain things we can't get back. And it's not just with our hair colour, friends, our age or our taste of music. 
when we look in Genesis 1 last week and Genesis 2 this week, you must have seen it. You must have felt it. There are certain things that we know we are nostalgic for, but we just can't go back. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Like, literally, that's its name. From the first line, it's the book of beginnings. It's a book that takes us literally, actually, back to historical days. We saw this last week. We have a human longing for those days. We have a nostalgia for those days. Last week we saw in Genesis 1 to 2 verse 4, um, sorry, 2 verse 3, we saw that there's this narrative of creation, a history of what actually happened, an account over six days where God creates everything from nothing. And then we come to chapter 2, and what we're seeing this morning is whilst there is the big picture view of creation, of those six days and that seventh day of rest, what we see in chapter 2 is a zooming in, a focus, like we heard in the kids' talk, where in chapter 1, God says of his creation, that's good, and that's good, and that's good, and that's good. But chapter 2, he zooms in on humanity, and what do we see him say? Not just it's good, he uses the word very. It's very good. Like we heard last week, when, when the Bible uses the word very, it uses it sparingly and it uses it particularly and intentionally. And here we see in chapter 2 something that we have a nostalgia for, something that was very good. A humanity without tears, without 27 minutes of news of death and sin and wrong and human evil. A humanity that is missing those things and is not missing out, but is actually better and beautiful. And if we want to understand ourselves today... We need to understand Genesis 2. Pictures of a real historical yesterday. Where life was such an easy game to play. If Genesis 1's summary is, why do we exist? Is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Genesis 2, if you don't get for the next few minutes all the details, which you probably, you know, like I understand as a preacher, my job is to help you see Christ and his word, but I want you to see Christ and his word, that's my prayer, but I also want you to see, he's the big idea, this is the way we were, this is the way we were meant to be, this is how we understand us even today. It's how we understand humanity. We don't understand who we are unless we look in Genesis 2 as a foundation. And it particularly starts in chapter 2 verse 4. It has a very interesting phrase in 2 verse 4. Again, last week, I know, I have friends, like I said last time, I have friends that don't see, even Christian friends, surprisingly, who don't see Genesis 1, 2, 3 to 11, they don't see it as perhaps history. And like I said last week, we can be friends. But I want to do what friends do, and that is win you over and, and, and show you how compellingly historical and real that this is. And we looked in last week in all sorts of avenues of science and, and history of interpretation, but here I want you to see something right out the gate, right in verse 4 of our Bible reading, of Genesis 2 verse 4. I want you to notice this. Genesis 2 verse 4 sees this as history. Look at this, verse 4. 
These are the generations of. This is not the language of myth. This is not the language of legend, of fantasy. This is the generations of. It's a phrase that's repeated throughout the Bible, through Numbers, through the book of Ruth. And it's meant to show us, before we had in the Reformation, versification comes in the Reformation, so chapter numbers and verse numbers. But before we had chapter and verse numbers, we had phrases like this. The writer who pens this, God's word, who, who breathes this, God is showing us this is a marker, this is a moment. These are the generations of, and we're actually going to see it in a series throughout the book of Genesis, these are the generations of, and it marks kind of a new episode in that sense. And in these generations, we're told, take note, here is how we understand our place. For... These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And it goes on, we read, this is a zooming in on the generations of us. Adam, Eve, our ancient grandparents. Here is the start of the family tree. Genesis grounds events in history, in human history, with historical reference. And here we see in verses 5 and 6 God's purposes for human history, for humans. His intention, his creation. Look at verse 7, Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Different to every other way God creates other living creatures. Did you notice this? God doesn't breathe the same breath of life into the nostrils of birds. He doesn't breathe it into the nostrils of lions and cheetahs and dogs and mice. He doesn't breathe it into the gills of fish. Here, distinctively, differently, God breathes life his life-giving breath into the soul of a human, of an image-bearer. Now, I know I don't have all morning, and this would be more of a lecture than a, perhaps a sermon, but just for the moment, here's, a, here's something very important to see. Friends, this speaks against any and every evolutionary theory of humanity. I know there's theories out there about um, kind of humanoids, hominoids, hominoids that kind of, they're there and they're, sort of, they're kind of swinging from the trees and all of a sudden God must breathe life into them and then that becomes Adam and Eve. I know there's all sorts of theories and we can talk about this over morning tea at lunch. We have more time to do that. But the text of God's word shows us that God is doing something distinctive and different. He's breathing life into a creature he has formed from the dust, not from another creature. And as he breathes life into this creature, this shows us many things. Most of all, I think, we see, when we understand us, it shows us human image-bearing dignity. Friends, look at history of the world. It is no accident that where you see evolutionary theory reign in political circles, in nations, we see human dignity turned into like we're mud 
to be oppressed and suppressed. All evolutionary theories, and I, I want to say this to friends, I get it, I have friends that, you know, what about the science and that sort of thing, and we can talk about that, but all evolutionary theories lead to a taking away from human dignity. It also, by the way, takes away from the gospel. Go to Romans 5. In Romans 5, Paul is at pains. I mean, he writes a really long letter to the Roman, to the church of, in Rome. And in Romans 5, he says, There's a real Adam. Through one man, sin and death comes. And then through one man, salvation comes. One real man in history, the first Adam, the second newer and better Adam is Christ. There's one man, one man. And, and, and this is the way the Bible sees things. Human dignity is wrapped up in understanding us in Genesis 2. And also human sin and the need of human salvation. We see God's intended purposes and for our dignity and what he has us here for in Genesis 2 verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now there's so much to say about the east. I said to Amy last night as I kind of finished off, polished off what I thought was still a sermon that needs polishing. We all know what it feels like to feel that. It feels like, is this you know, only the Holy Spirit's, his word is going to be the thing that works here. It won't be my turn of phrase. But as I polished off, I said, Ames, Ames, you know me, there's so much more that could be said that I would be in danger of saying it would be here or morning. There's so much to say about the East. We're going to leave that for next week. But there's so many things about the east here that matters, where the garden is, where the entrance and exit of that garden is, how that relates to the temple, how that relates to the cherubim and seraphim that we sung about today, how that relates to salvation in Christ, and we'll see that all next week in Genesis 3. But just for now, just for now, if we can focus on this, look at this, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The name Eden means delight. The garden is full of delight. And, and we see this in verse 9. God causes to come out of that garden ground every tree that is good to look at and is tasty with fruit. It's even good to look at. Not just good to taste, it's good to look at. They ate good food. It's a good garden full of good stuff. This garden, this parkland had everything. I want us to get this because we think God is stingy. So we, we hear the command about the tree. We think, ah, oh, that's just typical God. He doesn't want me to be happy. I know what makes me happy. I will do what I want, which makes me happy because God does not want me to be happy. That is a lie. That is a lie of the serpent. Did God really say, does God really love you? Does God really want you to be happy? Does God really give good gifts? Yes. He gives a whole garden of good gifts. They're even good to look at you could, without even tasting the fruit. If you get full, you can just look at the tree and be feeling full of delight. But we believe a lie. And it wrecks our life. God is good. He gives good gifts. 
He loves you. And look what he does in the garden. There's more. Verse 10. This garden has rivers that flow out of Eden. Now we know uh, that, that Eden was perhaps on a, on a hill, on a mountain. And, and where do rivers flow from? Out of tops of mountains. So here is this high place, river, this river flowing. And this river divides into four rivers that overflow and irrigate all the lands around. Blessing comes through this beautiful garden. And this land, this garden is full of resources, gold, onyx. It's got everything. And this garden, with the gardener, is put there to glorify God and enjoy him there, in this place of enjoyment, where he has a personal relationship with God, and that's very good. And God puts him there to work the ground, to care for the garden, to be the gardener. And as Adam's put there to work it, to keep it, we see, we understand us. Do you ever feel like that need to create something? I know they're in our world, we say, well, they're the creatives. You know the creative types? Like, they're always scatterbrained, and they're not organised, and they're kind of just creating stuff. But they create all the cool stuff that we get to enjoy, but they're the creative types. We've got the organised types over here, perhaps the lawyers. I know some of us not here that are lawyers today, so we can just, you know, they might watch online. But those kind of types, they're organised, and they're dutifully going to work at 6am in the morning while the creatives are sleeping in. But we're all made to work this way. It doesn't matter if you're a creative or it doesn't matter if you're a kind of a a. 6am schedule type person. The reason we work, the reason we actually sometimes even enjoy work, even in a fallen world, is because God has made us to be workers. He's made us to be gardeners. He's made us to be stewards. He's made us to be servant leaders. He's made us to be little crown people under the king of kings with a glorious crown. That is the way it's meant to be. We are created to be gardeners and guardians of this world. It's why we are workers. Not, mind you, we're not to idolise our work, but we do now this side of the fall. We're not designed to be workaholics. We tend to do that this side of the fall. We're designed to enjoy our work as we work God's garden, God's world. What does that mean for understanding us, friends? We all work. I know some of us don't have paid work. And we we care for you, we pray with you, and we help and serve one another. But all work is work, be it paid work, volunteer work, or housework. Doing the dishes. Serving someone at morning tea at church. Serving, working, stewarding. Even gospel work. All Christians are enlisted in gospel work. It's work and it has a joy in it of serving others. See, what does sin teach us though? This side of the fall. Sin in our world, our world in our sin, teaches us something different. More so in our part of the world. What is that? What is Australia? If you, if you go and listen to the preachers, what are the preachers in Australia? Netflix, Stan, commercial TV... Radio, internet, like they're the kind of preachers we go to. What do the preachers in the West, in our part of the world, teach us? They teach you to understand yourself as a consumer. Our world disciples us towards being consumers, which is why we lash out and say, 
but how are my desires met? How do I get what I want? We're taught that. We're discipled that way. It's part of the fabric of, it's all about me. I'm taught that I'm a consumer, therefore I exist, and it's all about me. And for this reason, particularly in our part of the world, I think we see, if, we, you, know, if you were to ask the average Aussie, what are, we, what are we here for? Whether we express it in words or we kind of say it in so many different ways, we think our reason for existence is to be entertained. I exist, and like Robbie Williams, the great prophet of our previous generation of middle-aged men and women, said, let me entertain you. Oh, let me entertain you. It's not the way it's meant to be. We are not just consumers who need all our desires met. We are designed to be something beautiful. Stewards, servants, the one another's of the New Testament, looking to one another. That's our design. Friends, here's what I'm encouraged about. If you can just give me a... It's like a dad moment. Here's a, here's a fellow elder moment. So what the elders are encouraged with, we have a growing culture here of even children, of even teenagers serving at church. I want you to notice, even at church lunch today, I don't want to sort of call it out, there are children, there are teenagers who would serve lunch to others. There are teenagers who would serve in a variety of roles in our church. That is a beautiful culture because they're learning, they're being discipled that it's not about me. They're discipled that God has designed me to love others. Yes, there's work, rest and play as Mars Bar taught us. Yes, but it's not just entertain me. It's, it's actually a loving and a service one. That's how we understand us. That's the way God has made it to be. Whatever it is, whatever you do, we're made to be doers, workers. This is God's good design and it's beautiful. Of course, we see in this narrative, then in verse 9, this beautiful garden where we receive everything from God's hand that's good has two trees. Now do note, and note well, one is the tree of life. That is a tree that if Adam had been reaching out and grasping at that fruit, that would be a way to enjoy God forever. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Is the second tree. And we'll see next week these trees in more depth and detail and what they're about, and what it means that Adam should not, could not reach out and eat of the tree of life. Not yet. This garden has everything, it's got two special trees, but with these two trees comes something that's important for us to see if we're going to understand humanity. It's got what theologians call the covenant of works. So if we're going to understand us, yes, we need, to, we need to understand our place, our place in the garden, how it was meant to be. We also need to understand the covenant of works. Now, I know when we talk about the works, if you mention the word works in a church, we get all a bit twitchy, right? Because we're, we're kind of used to, we almost assume the word works is bad. 
right? So we go, oh, no, don't do works, they're bad. But there's actually such a thing called good works in the Bible. We just know that good works don't save us. In fact, this is what the covenant of works is all about. We see in this perfect world where all is very good, Adam is given a command in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You can eat of everything in the garden. You can make a Caesar salad if you want. Don't eat of this one. Trust me at my word, God is saying. God says, I give you everything, but he's also give you a command. What God does here is he gives Adam special revelation. He gives him his word. And we'll see next week, Adam was actually meant to be a prophet. He's meant to be. What do prophets do? They speak God's word. He's meant to speak God's word to Eve. He's meant to do that to crush the head of the serpent, which we see he doesn't do next week. But he's meant to be prophets. How do prophets get their word? They get it from God. Here is God's word given to Adam. Here is his special revelation. God speaks to Adam. And in his command, which shows how much God cares, it's a command between God and man. And the Bible shows is a covenant of works. Here it is. You shall not eat of the tree. Here's the covenant of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, some people say there's no covenant here. There's no word covenant. That's like saying there's no word Trinity, but we can see, as we saw last week, the triune God is everywhere in the pages of Scripture. This is a covenantal relationship. The Bible is full of covenantal relationships. Actually, life is. Can you think of a covenantal relationship? I mean, quick, quick think of an example. Can you think of an example of a covenantal relationship where we have this idea that we're committed to this relationship and death will end it? I think, I wish we just read something recently that talked about committed to a covenant relationship until death do us part. Oh, it's marriage. There's one. Marriage is a covenant. It's got the whole language of covenant in it. Committed to this and only death parts it. Death breaks it. That's the idea. That's the idea of the relationship. And if in marriage is a life and death commitment that involves promises and obligations sealed with an oath till death do us part, then here we see this covenant, it's a covenant of works. Why is it a covenant of works? Because it's a covenant of, Adam, obey me at my word. But if you disobey, you will die. You will surely die. It's a covenant of works because life is promised to Adam on the condition of perfect and personal obedience. At this point, this is why our nostalgia goes up a few levels. We know this was the way it was meant to be. We got, we got a feeling, even in our disobedience, I'm meant to actually obey God. But we see in Hosea 6 verse 7 that like Adam... And by the way, for those who can't find the word covenant here, Hosea 6 verse 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And there they dealt faithlessly with me. Friends, we are a Reformed church, Reformed and Presbyterian. Reformed theology is by definition covenant theology. So you can't be saying, oh, well, I'm Reformed, but I'm not into covenant theology. No, Reformed theology is covenant theology. 
There's a big book we had in our books, book library around somewhere. It starts at that very line. The book is like this thick and the first line is a summary. If you don't read anything else, don't get anything else, Reformed theology is covenant theology. Why? Because God relates to us through covenants. And there are two major covenants in the Bible. The covenant of works, which is about obedience, disobey and die. How long does the covenant of works last for? Any guesses? Two chapters. The covenant of works, I mean, if we want to say there's that covenant over that whole epoch, that period, it's because ever since Genesis 3, the covenant of works, we can't go back to anymore. Because we disobey, Adam disobeyed, we all disobey, we all sin. Adam transgresses that covenant, he sins, we all sin, we're all fallen. We can't keep the covenant of works now. It's irretrievably broken. We can't go back, we can't even try. People try, people try and get righteous by just doing right things or being Pharisees or by obeying the law or, or being Judaized and saying, if I just do the right Jewish rituals and do those right Jewish things, if I perhaps I do my thing on a Saturday and then God will be pleased with me and then I'll be right. It's Judaism, it's wrong. It is, you can't go back to the covenant of works. You can't. And you can't go back to the covenant of works hoping to get back into relationship with God because there is a flaming sword there. You can't go back, friends. The nostalgia grabs us by our hearts, but we need to see something better. For from Genesis 3 onwards, it's not a covenant of works we need. It's not what he gives. God now gives a covenant of grace. The first human that God formed, placed in the garden, a good worker, sinned. And we need a covenant of grace. Also, Genesis 2 gives us understanding of marriage. Genesis 2 verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And notice here, God sees, for the first time in a little while, something not good. It's not good that Adam doesn't have a suitable helper for him, and so God makes some arrangements. He brings all the creatures before Adam. And what can seem like the world's first speed dating session, which it's not really, but it kind of seems like what's happening here, what's happening here is, is we're actually being shown why there is a humanity, plural, why there is more than just Adam. This is the first expression of Adam's ruling, of course, his stewardship of care, he names the animals. But the point is this, there is not a suitable helper for him among them. It's not just that Adam is lonely, but that he is alone in his stewardship of the garden. Because there's nothing that is equal and complementary to him. So notice, does, does Adam act? Is Adam the one that goes, oh, I need to work it out, I need to work it out, perhaps through some... You know, some good thinking in a think tank, some legislation, we'll bring in some laws, I'll design, I'll, I'll kind of invent this thing called marriage and then we'll redefine it a few times and perhaps I'll work it out with, you know, what animal suits best. Does Adam do anything? He does nothing. Because he can't do anything about it. God is the one who acts. God acts by his design and he creates woman out of man and brings it to the man and notice in verse 23 the man breaks into poetry 
It's beautiful. Verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam calls her woman. He doesn't call her man because she's distinct and different. Yes, equal, but she's woman. She's not man. God created her to be a suitable helper. The woman is not a clone. She's a complement. She is equal to him, but not exactly like him. And therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is, sexually, yes, but in all ways, one flesh, because they are now, in this sense, one flesh as a family. Leaving and cleaving becomes the way families are formed. And notice that it says, together in the garden, and they're unashamed, meaning they share a non-shameful relationship a non-shameful sexuality with each other and with God, their creator. And here we have the foundational understanding of marriage. Friends, you know what's being said in our society. You know what our society does. You know the state of Victoria that we live in. You know what's said. You know what's legislated. You get all that. If you don't, by the way, Google it. But just, that's, it's different. And I think the assumption is, because this is old... We're smarter, we're on the right side of history, we've worked it out. But I think we missed something. Genesis 2 is not just written for the old people who you know, had different ideas about marriage. Genesis 2 was written at a time and read at a time where polygamy was practiced. Genesis 2 was written at a time where women were not seen as helpers and equal yet different and complementary but seen as power struggles or people to be abused, people to be used as property, multiple wives. Multiple wives in the Old Testament is not God's idea. And notice when it happens, and we'll see it later on, Abraham and Sarah kind of, oh, what should we do about the not having the child thing? Well, I don't, let's, let's get another woman involved in, in the relationship. Every time you see, every time you see multiple wives, multiple spouses in the Bible, how does that work out? Badly. Every time. This is written and read at a time when homosexuality was widely practiced in some cultures. This is written and read at a time when marriage was seen as unnecessary, where human relationships had gone wrong. Friends, the world has always been, and without Genesis 2, always remains, confused about marriage, gender, and sexuality because we have ignored and rebelled against God's design. Genesis 2 is written for then and now where rebellious hearts say this. Did God really say, though? Did God really say it's meant to be that way? Again, that's a lie. We believe the lie that God doesn't know what's best. Genesis 2 celebrates what's beautiful. In marriage is lifelong faithful companionship, a safe haven for unashamed sexuality and for procreation where children may or may not be present, but importantly, they're welcome. We don't scorn children. Genesis 2 is a foundation that we need. And by the way, because I've had friends, even Christian friends say, ah, but Jesus didn't talk about marriage. 
Alright. The first reading we had this morning was Matthew 19. Every time Jesus speaks about marriage, where does he go? Genesis. He goes to Genesis. Every time. Friends, there's something beautiful for us to see there. And ultimately, we need to see that we need Jesus. In a moment, we're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Lord's Supper as we turn to the table. But as we turn to the table, we need to understand what does the table of the Lord, what is the Lord's Supper and Genesis 2 got to do with Jesus? What does it show us about Jesus? So much. So much. But if I could just give you a moment to see this. In the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the gospel accounts, for example, in Luke chapter 3, we see the genealogy account. It gets down to Adam, and it calls Adam son of God. Because Adam is called son of God because he was son of God. He's literally, he's created by God. Not evolved, not come into being by accident of some evolutionary theory. He's created, intended by God. He's God's son, God the son. And yet that son disobeys the father. And that son breaks covenant with the father. And so we need a new son now, a better son. God the son, the saviour of the humans. Not just the son of God who's Adam, but God the son, the saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, of all the people in the world who understands how the world is meant to be, who is it? It's Jesus. If you understand how the world is meant to be, it's Jesus. Because he was there, and as we saw in Colossians last week, all things are made through him and by him and for him. It's Jesus. Jesus believed there was a real Adam and Eve. Jesus came to rescue and restore what we lost since Adam and Eve. Jesus come to give us more than nostalgia. He's come to bring us back to the garden. We read in our call to worship from Revelation 22, the future is a garden city. And get this, in the gospel accounts, when Mary runs from the tomb of Jesus, he's been crucified, dead on a cross, very much dead and buried. When Mary runs from the tomb on that first resurrection day, who does she run into? She runs into this man and she says, oh, Where have they put him? And Jesus reveals it's him. And what does she say? I thought you were the gardener. He's the gardener. That's the thing. He's the perfect gardener. He's the one who brings new life to a fallen world, who brings all people who trust in him into a covenant of grace, into the garden city, which is our future. For it is only Jesus, who is the perfect steward and ruler of the world, who comes into the world in its out-of-Eden state, which we are now in, who completely and perfectly keeps the covenant of works that we could not keep, and yet dies the death deserved in a covenant of works. He is cut off so that you and I don't have to be. So that we can be saved and rescued and restored in a covenant of grace now. That God relates to us by grace. And why does Jesus do all this, friends? Why? How? Because he's a new and better Adam. Put to sleep in death, whose rib side was pierced, who is now alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So that he breathes not into your nostrils, but he breathes a spirit into your heart and changes us so we can believe in him and be rescued and redeemed and restored to God forever. And why does he do it? Because he loves his bride. Not Eve, but the church. We are made in his image. And all our life of nostalgia and all life lost not only makes sense when you see who Jesus is, not only do we understand us, but we understand our future is incredibly bright because of Jesus our Lord. Friends, let's trust him. Let's go to him. Let's sing. Let's thank him. Let's pray now. Let's pray. Gracious God, it is in your image we are made and yet we know we are fallen. We know by not just our nostalgia, but we see in your word revealed to us today the things that were intended to be that are not. But we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is and what he does for us. That the great gardener comes to die so that we can be restored in your image. We thank you, we pray and we sing now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.